Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Good to have you here. It's good to see you. My name is Joe. If I don't know you, if I've not met you, I would love uh, to get to know you. Uh, you are at Hope. You're at our church. We have experienced for an entire year plus. The church is not a building, but we are so glad to be worshiping again in a building. I have great dreams. I have great um, hope that this space will be a hospitable place for us. Uh, this space is not for us. I just want to emphasize that. This space is not, in a sense, our space. It's the Lord Jesus' space. And this is a space that he is calling us to uniquely extend his welcome to everyone who walks in these doors. And so we are just going to thank Jesus today for this opportunity. I mean, this is more, I want to say, this is more than just air conditioning. This is more than just better acoustics. This is more than just a, a sort of an address that we can tell people to come to. It's more than just all kinds of things that we like. It's also for, and it's more importantly for, uh, those who have not yet received the welcome of Jesus, but that will in this location. So I'm so glad that we're here. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn with me uh, to Psalm 147. Psalm 147, as we continue our summer series on the Psalms of Praise. Psalm 147. In a couple weeks, we will begin our fall sermon series, and also know this, we have been treating this location, because it's very new to us, sort of as a soft launch. In many respects, we decided that we would just sort of set up here like we've been setting up in the NPC parking lot. But over the course of the weeks, especially as we hit towards fall and uh, the week, uh, mid-week of September, mid-month of September, we hope to see uh, us using this space for all that we can. And around that time, we'll be getting a new sermon series on the book of James in the New Testament. I'm super excited about that. But until then, we are continuing to explore the Psalms of Praise. And this morning, we're looking at Psalm 147. I'll read uh, the text here, God's Word, and you can follow along. We'll pray, and we'll see what God has for us this morning. It's a beautiful sound, too. Praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lair. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to them beasts, gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens 
the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? His cold. He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. It's the Lord this morning with the words of my mouth, with the meditation of all of our hearts here gathered together, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our Redeemer, Holy Spirit. Would you empower this time? Would you open our hearts so that we would not just learn information, but that we would see Jesus? And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in the spring of 2005, author, writer, David Foster Wallace, late writer, David Foster Wallace, he addressed the graduates of Kenyon College, what, not an hour northeast from here. And it's, it's a famous commencement address. And he begins it with a parable, and I'm quoting him. There are these two fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the heck is water? My, my edit there. I love this story because it reminds me that most of my life, most of our life, is taken for granted. Most of my life is the water I'm swimming in. And every once in a while, a fish, a so-called fish, comes along and reminds me to consider the water. The writer Douglas Adams says, it's usually when things break that we notice them. Amen? Anybody know that? For me, uh, the death of my dad was this way. I simply took him for granted. His advice, his phone calls, just his presence. Most of you know he passed away during the onset of the pandemic. And I think the pandemic was for most of us another big fish. Right? A moment of noticing the water. Uh, for the first time, maybe we noticed things that we took for granted in our life. Because they were suddenly broken or they were suddenly gone. Things like shaking hands, things like hugs, things like cookouts, things like neighborhood pools, and things like church. This is the first time since the pandemic that we have gathered in a building to worship since March of 2020. So this morning we're probably noticing things that we missed and we didn't know that we missed. And that we took for granted beforehand. And one of those things for me was singing with you all. I don't know about you, but I didn't realize how important it was like for my faith to sing with you all. I didn't realize how critical it was for my faith to hear your voices, to sing with you. I think singing in worship is one of those things that we will never, ever take for granted again. I mean, it's as if God designed us 
to sing praises to him together. And that's exactly what this psalm tells us. If you look again at verse 1. Verse 1 says, praise the Lord. That's hallelujah in Hebrew. Praise the Lord. And then, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. And then if you skip to verse 7, it goes on. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving and make melody to our God on the lyre. And that's an ancient guitar. And then verse 12. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. So, Hallelujah here is musical. It's song. It's singing. Scholars agree. It's praise accompanied with music and with song. It's Tehillim in Hebrew. Songs of praise. I think sometimes we miss this because we approach the songs on our own, in our own quiet times, with prayer. And that's great. To use these as prayer, to use these in silent meditation is fantastic. But we cannot miss verse 1. Sing to the Lord. Sing His praises. These are worship songs. The Psalter, the Psalms, the book of Psalms, is the ancient hymn book or worship book of God's people. And then just look again at verse 1. This verse is one of the most on-the-nose teachings about that I've come across in the Bible about, the music, about music and about worship. We learn in one little verse that we should praise the Lord with singing and music. That alone is pretty fantastic. Why, though? Because it says it is good. It is good. And it's good in two ways. It's good because it's pleasant, this text says, and it's good because it's fitting. It's pleasant and it's fitting. In other words, it is good for us and it's good to God. Singing praise is good to God. So verse 1 tells us that our praise is good. It's the tov in Hebrew that God declares over all of creation. When God looked at what he made, he said tov. He said, this is good. This is good. And when he hears our singing, when he hears our music... He values it. He loves it. He delights in it. He says, Tove over it. Singing praise is good to God, but it's also good for us. So commentators point out a paradox right here in verse 1. On the one hand, singing praise is not about us at all. It's not about us at all, it's about God. But when we sing praise to God, this verse tells us it somehow makes us more alive. It's pleasant. It's good for us, even. Praise is not about us, but nevertheless, we benefit from it. And this makes sense if you think about it, because if, if, if we are designed to make much of God, if we are designed even to sing, if we're singing creatures... And if we're designed to sing to God, then doing so will what? It'll unleash us and unlock us and maybe even free us into being who we are created to be. So yeah, God gets all the glory, God gets all the praise, and then there's a strange paradoxical freedom that we ourselves experience at the same time. God gets glory, we get glad. That's how God designed us. About 15 years ago, I bought a car... It was very, very old, but also very, very low in miles. In fact, that was one of its selling points. One of its selling points was, this basically sat around in a garage and didn't go anywhere. 
And so it looked amazing. The only problem was it was always breaking down. It was always in the shop. There was always something broken about it. So apparently, I mean, this, is, this was new to me, cars are meant to be driven. That was like... That was like a great sort of aha moment for me. If they sit around all day, they don't just sort of stay the way they are. They actually degrade. In fact, driving a car the way that they were designed to drive actually makes them last longer because that's how they were designed. And the same is true for human beings. If we're designed to worship and to sing, then we are most alive when we are singing praise. Just like a car is more fully car. When it's driving. So we are more fully human when we are singing praise. So verse 1 is, for me, a mini theology of worship. There's something about it that is good for us. There's something about it that is good to God. And this tells us that singing, as we just did this morning, and as we will at the close of this time, is not just an add-on. It's not just something we do to fill time when we gather together. It is central. It is central to who we are as God's people. If you're coming in here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're just exploring what it would look like to follow Jesus, I think this verse could be really instructive that Christians at their root, at their core, are those who sing praises to Jesus. We're going to explore why that's a good thing. If I had encountered this verse, I think before the pandemic, I probably wouldn't have made much notice of it. Oh yeah, sing praises. Hallelujah. But because we've not had congregational singing for so long, and even outside, your voices were lost in the sky, in the air. But now I see this verse. I love this verse. I love this verse. Verse 1 tells us singing praise is good. Singing praise together is good. But there are 20 more verses in this psalm, and I'm not going to spend as much time on each verse as I just did in verse 1. But what are these other 20 verses doing? They're actually showing us sort of how to sing praise. So if verse 1 answers the question, why sing praise, gives us a mini theology of it, then the remainder, 2 through 20, answers the question, how do we sing praise? And this psalm shows us a way. So many of the psalms show us different ways. This psalm shows us a way. By celebrating what God does and by celebrating what God loves through song. We celebrate first what God does through singing. Through singing. We celebrate what God does and what He has done and what He promises to do throughout redemptive history by singing. In this psalm we see that in two ways. God creates And God cares or caretakes. God is both creator and caretaker. And so first we celebrate that God is creator. God is high and lifted up as creator in this text. So look again at verses 4 and 5. He determines the number of the stars. And he gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. It's immeasurable. God is creator of all the stars. In fact, Isaiah 40, verse 26, listen to this. And if you were singing with us, we sang about this with missing not one. The Lord says through Isaiah, lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? 
He who brings out their host, that's like an army, their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Missing not one. From before the world was made, sinners ransomed for the glory, the one who calls them each by name. The Lord is creator. One commentary says this, and I'm quoting, Astronomers now estimate that there are more than 400 billion stars in the Milky Way. And that there are 125 billion galaxies. So Milky Way is just one of 125 billion galaxies, we think. The total number of stars, therefore, is estimated at, and math majors help me out, one times or 1 to the 1,022nd, or that's 10 billion trillions stars. God is creator of all of them and knows them, each by name. So God is creator, and, this, and by singing this, we're reminded of this, and we're actually celebrating this reality about God. Yet he's also caretaker. Look at verses 2 through 3. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. So the fact that God knows every single star of the, not just the Milky Way universe, but every universe, all 125 billion universes, does not mean that he will forget you. And isn't that the point? His awesome power is bent toward comfort and care. You look at verses 8 and 9, we see that God doesn't just stand back. He's creator, yes, but he is caretaker. What's it say? He covers the heavens with the clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. He cares for us so much that his powerful word that spoke everything into existence is also his powerful word that upholds everything in existence. And how appropriate that we are meeting in a 4-H building. When we read verses 15 through 18, he sends out his command on the earth and his word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. Picture that. Picture what it looks like when you are done with your fireplace and maybe you throw your ashes out. That's the Lord. He does that. That's when it snows. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? Some of you who maybe aren't from the Midwest, it's hard words to hear that, that it's his cold. Cold is his cold. So don't blame Ohio if you're here and you don't like it when it gets cold. He cares for us so much that this same word, this snow-creating word, this snow-melting word is also given uniquely to his people. Verse 19. Verse 19 we are in special relationship to His Word. He speaks His Word to us. He gives us His Word. The Bible is our unique possession, God's people. Same Word that spoke into creation, everything. By the power of the same Word, He speaks to us in Scripture. God is both creator, in other words, and caretaker. That's what God does. And we sing and we celebrate this. Other psalms, they sing and they celebrate uh, what God has done and what God, uh, and other aspects of who God is. The point is that I want us to take away from this is that we take things that God has revealed about Himself. 
And we sing them. Okay? We sing them. We sing about them. We sing our theology. And we sing in response to who God is. And this is so key because there's a difference between believing true things and really knowing and singing true things. There is a difference. You've heard me say so many times, there's a difference between statistical knowledge and relational knowledge. I've shared before how there's a difference between reading a biography of somebody and being married to that person. If you go to REI, there's an entire section, there's an entire section that sells trail guides. There's a difference between opening that up and studying these trail guides and hiking on them and getting to know them every square inch. I've shared before my cookbooks. I love cookbooks. I love reading cookbooks. That makes me weird, but I know there's others of you. I will read a cookbook, but there's a difference between reading about food and feasting together with food. There's a difference between sort of previewing and doing the mise en place on the table and actually cooking the food. Sometimes people ask if I've seen a movie, and I say to them, because I'm not a big movie person, I say to them, I've not seen it, but I know what it's about. And what does that do? That grieves your heart, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. You're like, that's not the point. You need to experience it. And that's what we do when we say true things about God, but we don't sing them. We don't celebrate them with song and with music. There's a huge difference between knowing about God and celebrating God through song. So we celebrate what God does. And we also in this song notice that we celebrate what God loves. Not just what He does, but what He loves. You don't know somebody well until you know what they love. And in this psalm, we are, we are given access to God's delight. And therefore, we are invited to delight in what God delights in. God delights in healing. Verses 2 and 3 tell us it's the heartbeat of God. He sees our brokenness and He mends it. He sees our exile and He brings us home. He sees our broken hearts within and our broken bodies without. And it's His desire and delight to heal them. And when we sing, we sing about that. We delight in God's delight. In healing us. In bringing us home. We sing about our hope that day when He does restore all that is broken, including our bodies, including our stories. Second, we see that God delights in humility. Look at verses 10 through 11. It says here that God does not delight in horses. And if you love horses, I'm not going to throw horses under the bus either with cold. Because all that this is saying is that God's delight is not in sort of Calvary strength. That's what that means. God made horses. He loves horses. He says, Tove or horses. He does not delight in cavalry and in men's legs here, mean infantry. What's he saying? He, del- he delights in a heart that stands in awe of God, fear of God, and hopes in what? His chesed, his steadfast love. So we celebrate this surprising truth about God. If we were making God up, we would assume that God, who is powerful enough to speak, Snow into existence. 
The God who is powerful enough to make all, to be above all the stars and to name all the stars, we would assume that he would delight in feats of human power. But we see here instead that the God we worship delights not in feats of power, he delights sort of in feats of trust and feats of humility. Andrew Wilson is a pastor theologian in the UK, and he talks about this strange theme in Scripture, where God's people tend to find victory throughout the story of God, not with weapons, but with tools. It's strange, but once your eyes are open to it, you're kind of just like, oh my gosh, it's true. So some of you may know the story of Jael, who crushes the head of a powerful commander with a mallet and a tent peg. Gideon with a jar. Moses, a shepherding staff. And in our psalm, we see this theme, and we see why. God does not delight in our feats of strength. He delights in our feats of trust. Later, Andrew Wilson draws this connection to the cross, where, and I'm going to quote, Rome... The most powerful military force in the world yet seen gathers a battalion of soldiers. So think of this song, the cavalry and the infantry. Quote, gathers a battalion of soldiers to inspect Israel's king. They are armed. He is stripped. They come with swords and spears. He comes in nothing but the name of the Lord God. They carry the most advanced weapons available. He is carrying the ordinary carpenter's tools of his upbringing. Nails, hammers, and planks of wood. Tools. Yet when the dust settles, the warriors are no match for the carpenter. And the head of the enemy is crushed. Right through the temple. End quote. Jail, anybody? Tools, not weapons. God delights in our feats of trust, not our feats of strength. When we are weak, He is strong. We celebrate that. We sing about that. When we gather, we say, praise you, Jesus, for that. God so delights in humility that Jesus himself most fully reveals the heart of God on the cross. Jesus, though he is fully God, humbled himself to death on a cross. God delights in humility. And then finally, we see that God delights in his own. He delights in his own people. Verse 20 celebrates this astonishing truth. That God is in relationship to us. This doesn't make us proud. This doesn't make us sit in our hands. In fact, all throughout the Old Testament we learn that God's people are chosen not so that they can sort of congratulate themselves, but so that they can be on mission. And extend that same welcome to others. But it is astonishing if you sit and think about it, that you are here this morning. God delights in you. And He delights that you are here. God doesn't tolerate you this morning. God doesn't 
just sort of like you theoretically because you're in his church. God loves you. He, tol- he doesn't tolerate you. He delights in you. God so wants to be in relationship with you that Jesus gladly came to live for us, to die for us, to be raised for us, to come again, to restore us so that we could be with him for all of eternity. It's been said that all religions are shaped like an inn. The lowercase n. Picture that. An inn. We do something for God. God does something in return. We sacrifice. God responds. We obey. God reacts. We sing, God gives. But this song celebrates something different. Christopher Wilkin, he says, our relationship to God that we see in the scriptures is utterly unique. It's not shaped like a you, an end. It's shaped like a you. It's shaped like a you. God who is high comes down. And we offer our praises. God who is high and lifted up moves in. And even in our sin and our rebellion, God says, I know you're sinful and rebellious. Trust me. But I will create a sacrificial system so that my holiness can be preserved and yet my intimacy with you can also be established. In fact, the whole book of Leviticus, you may be sort of tempted to sort of not read that, 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 that book, but you're missing something very, very important about the heart of God. The book of Leviticus is God basically saying, I want to be with you. I want to be with you. I am a holy God. We are sinners and rebels. And God like a you, comes down into our presence and says, this is, how I, I, this is how I am just and justifier at the same time. And all of this points to Jesus, where God again is just and justifier, where he is holy without any kind of, any kind of uh, dilution. And yet, fully intimate. He wants to do this. He delights in us. It's not an end. It's a you. God who's high comes down and we respond with what? Songs of praise. I want us to see songs of praise not as a way to twist God's arm into getting what we want. A song of praise, in other words, is a sign that we have a you-shaped relationship with God Almighty. See, songs of praise are central to the Christian life because our songs prove That God relates to us by grace and not by works or by good intention. See, our songs are not to get God's love. Our songs are not so that God would sort of come down to us. We already have it and we respond through singing. The Lord builds us up, we sing. The Lord gathers us in, we sing. The Lord, verse 3 heals our shattered heart. We sing. The Lord, verse 3, binds our shattered body. We sing. The Lord protects. We sing. The Lord blesses. We sing. The Lord makes peace. We sing. The Lord fills. We sing. The Lord delights in us. Verse 20. 
we sing. This is the U-shaped glory of our God and of our relationship with God. All is gift. So what does this mean for you? Well, one word. Two, if you're Hebrew speaking, hallelujah. That's what it means for you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And praise the Lord through singing. That's the takeaway. Kirk Thompson, who's an expert on the brain, but also a pastor at heart, showed me how God designed our brains to be integrated. What he means is that our brains, how God made us, our brains have a logical side and an emotional side. And that's super simplistic. But the point remains, in order to arrive at God's best, both sides of our brains need to be connected. So imagine for a second a lake. There's a lake over there if you need some help. And you're on one side. And your friend is on the other side. But you have one of those small boats with the, with the paddles on either side connected. You know what I'm talking about? So in order to get to your friend, you push off. You push off. So far, so good. You're on your way. But you decide to only use one paddle. So eventually you start going to circles. Seeing our theology is how we paddle with both oars. See, when we only use one oar, it's as as if we're only relating to God with logic and thinking, which is very important. It's a God-given paddle. But he also made us to relate to him with this other path. What the Bible calls our leb, our heart. We are meant to paddle with all of who we are. Otherwise, we will go in circles. See, singing our theology, singing praise, is how we paddle with both oars. This psalm, and any good worship song that we sing on Sunday morning or any other time, will include truths about God. And that's or number one. And also, in the form of a song, with rhythm and with melody, and with poetry, that conjures up and should conjure up memories. And even the rhythm of it and the melody of it, something happens when we use this oar, along with this oar. The old saying, the longest distance in the world is between the head and the heart, singing praise bridges that gap. So if you love singing and you love playing music, this song tells us, keep keep doing that. Keep doing that and do so often. If you struggle to sing and you think to yourself, I'm not a musical person, I want you to lean in here. This song tells us that it is good. It is good to sing. And my experience singing is how God communicates to, to me and it's how God communicates truth to my heart. I can read books, and I do read books, and sometimes God gets to my heart that way. But sometimes when I sing to you all a truth that I knew, I suddenly know. I'm relating to God with singing. And besides, even if you aren't a singer, even if you aren't musical, my wife who's an art teacher, she would say, no, you can learn to be an artist. I think you can learn to sing. 
number one. Number two, lean in. Why? Because I need your voice. We all need your voice. If we learned anything this past 18 months, we need each other's voices. When I sing with others, my heart is encouraged. The Apostle Paul tells the church to sing not just to God, but to one another. When we're singing together, I want us to view it as almost like preaching to one another. So on this first Sunday in our new space, I want us to imagine many, many years to come singing praise. It's good for us. And it's good to God. So Lord, we do pray that you would open our hearts to sing your praise. Lord, that we would indeed taste and see your goodness as we sing. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.